stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. for responses last week. There'll be more about that later on in the show. Uh, but many of those responses were extremely personal and touching and profound, and I really do appreciate it. So we'll talk more about the ongoing subject I mentioned last week later on in the show. Uh, first, though, we have a guest, and um, 
he is Dan Barker. He is the co-president of the uh, former Christian minister, I should mention. He's the co-president of the Freedom from Religion Foundation and co-host of Free Thought Radio and co-founder of the Clergy Project. Hello, Mr. Barker. Hello, Mike. Good to talk to you. Okay, and I'm not calling you... Uh, when you say former Christian minister, does that mean that you are officially now not, or you just, re- just sort of walked away from it? Well, actually, I still have my Christian ordination from okay. 1975, and so I was never, whatever you want to call it, disbarred or disfellowshipped or kicked out, <clears throat> but I voluntarily left. Mm-hmm. And uh, However, because I do have an ordination, I have been continuing to perform weddings for non-believers, for atheists and agnostics all over the country. And the mm-hmm. state, the state of California and other states, they accept my ordination as valid for purposes of officiating at a wedding. So I, I guess I'm a former Christian minister, but I'm still I'm still ministering, in a sense, to the secular community. And <clears throat> legally, you can obviously sign a document that says people are married. Or, so the state consider some states consider you, uh, and, you know. Um, the point today, I'm going to talk more about your background uh, and more about your biography here. But... Um, the, the reason I'm asking you on here is that there was a big article, a full-page article in the Times. Um, now it's June 2nd, so it was about three weeks ago or more. Uh, I'm getting a little um, kind of distortion at your end. Is, is it a, um, I don't know, maybe the micro, microphone, the phone is too close or something like that at your end. Oh, really? Am I talking to, should I back up a bit maybe? Maybe a bit, I don't know. <clears throat> All right. Okay, um, now... Um, this is an article actually mentioning, this is from the Freedom From Religion Foundation's uh, website, and it mentions that, in fact, there was a full-page ad today, that's June 2nd, highlighting a lawsuit that your organization, Freedom, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, has brought against the U.S. Congress. <clears throat> and I'm going to read a little bit about that, and then maybe we can talk a little bit. Should we do that? Is that good? Sure. Okay. Uh, Freedom from Religion Foundation filed this lawsuit um, after the national uh, lawmaking body, Congress, denied co-president Dan Barker a chance to give an atheist invocation. Um, Atheists don't have a prayer in Congress. Very clever. The headline aptly notes. What, What would an atheist invocation sound like? Well, actually, I submitted a draft of my remarks to the chaplain, Father, Father Pat Conroy, uh, and it, it was not putting anybody down. The draft of my remarks was celebrating our wonderful country, the freedoms that we have, and acknowledging that the House of Representatives, which is supposed to represent, should welcome non-believers who are right now, right now about a quarter of Americans are non-religious. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I would... My draft of my remarks said, in the United States of America, there is no higher power than we the people. Mm-hmm. We are the highest power in this country. And that many of us cannot pray to any supernatural spirit, but we can invoke the spirit, in quotes. We can invoke the spirit of Thomas Paine, you know, the anti-Christian deistic founding father who wrote Common Sense, who who named our country. Uh, we can invoke the spirit of Thomas Jefferson, uh, who wanted state and church to be separate, and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, celebrating positive values in our country. So, uh, uh, no one else ever had to submit any draft remarks, and and of course, the government cannot 
censor speech based on its content. But I thought I would put his mind at ease by by submitting a draft. And if you look at our lawsuit mm-hmm. online at our webpage, you can see all the exhibits, including uh, the draft of the remarks that I would like to give if I were allowed to be treated like an ordinary American citizen to participate in my government. Well, um, join the large club of the rest of America right at the moment. Uh, participating in the government seems to be an antique yeah. that we're all shopping for again someplace. Um, but in this particular case, did they respond to your draft at all or just not respond or just give you um, a dismissal, like a, like a short denial? How did, what was the response? Yeah, they did respond um, informally and formally. The, the thing is, uh, ordinarily, you and I don't have a right to free speech to go into Congress to, to do that prayer. The prayer is administered by the chaplain. By the way, the chaplain gets a salary of $176,000 a year, and he has two full-time staff people, and his only codified duty is to open each session with a prayer. We figured it came out to more than $2,000 per prayer, what, what we taxpayers are paying, a, pr- a prayer that hardly anyone comes to. But in any event, um, well, you it's say not it's, like um, it's eight hundred thousand uh, dollars to maintain well, it, a staff of two Christian chaplains, whose major purpose well, is yeah. Well, if you include the Senate, the Senate also has oh. a chaplain and staff. So if you include both of those, their salaries and their staff, it's almost eight hundred thousand dollars a year that we taxpayers are are paying to be prayed at uh, by a government official. So. Um, so we don't have a right to go in, you know, it's not like a free speech thing, but uh, the chaplain is there at the pleasure of the members of Congress. And so a member of Congress can request a guest chaplain to come in. Mm-hmm. And about 40, 40% or so of the prayers have been delivered by outsiders at the request of a member of Congress. Like when Senator Feingold became a senator, he asked the chaplain of the Senate if his sister, who's a rabbi, could come and deliver an invocation, and and she was allowed to because because the member of Congress asked for it. So my representative here in Madison, Wisconsin, his name is Mark Polkan, he asked the chaplain if I could be allowed to deliver a guest invocation, just like it's happened with hundreds and hundreds of other people over the last few years. Mm-hmm. And so the chaplain told Mark Polkan informally, no, we can't do that because he has to address a higher power. And uh, he has to be ordained. A higher power. Well, first of all, you, you're, you're ordained, but the, the higher power you mentioned is what fascinates me. It is the highest power in a democracy, right? Well, exactly, and at least that's the point I want to make. We we don't call our president um, sir or reverend. or We, we call the president Mr. Mm-hmm. Mr. President. We're all just the same in this country. So, uh, And we fought a... a proud, rebellious, revolutionary war to kick out the king, the lord, the master, the sovereign over us, and we turned the Constitution completely upside down and started it with we the people. So I want to celebrate that wonderful concept of who we are. The government doesn't interfere with our religious views. So um, in any event, uh, Mark Pocan, who... You know, I actually don't know what Mark Pocan's views are. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if he agrees with me or not, but... He is a, a representative, and he does believe in liberty and justice for all. And he does believe that as a representative, he should represent. And I'm in his district. And why should he not be allowed to ask someone like me, who is the co-president of, of, a, of a major atheist agnostic organization, to participate in government, just like clergy and, and ministers and priests and rabbis do? So then, uh, after 
after a year and a half, actually, we finally got a formal turndown from the attorney representing the chaplain saying, no, uh, that I would not be allowed for those various reasons. Uh, and they said, basically, because I'm no longer practicing in the religion in which I was ordained. But, of course, that's not a requirement that he makes of any of the other guest chaplains. In mm -hmm. fact, there's no written requirements at all. There actually is no policy. He, and he, he, he has he's an, making it up. The, was this a government-supplied uh, attorney? From yeah. The, like the Justice was, Department or the Congress or something? Well, it's his attorney. I guess the Congress hires legal staff. So they hired a, uh, they hired a lawyer, or they have a lawyer rather on you know on staff, and the lawyer responded to you instead of the chaplain. That's right, the chaplain's attorney, because you know they they have they need legal counsel. So so we have an official letter of a turn down, and um, in fact, just the week before we we filed the lawsuit. We filed it on May the 5th, which happens to be the National Day of Prayer, that first Thursday in, uh, in uh, May. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, two days before that, Mark Pocan, the representative, went to the chaplain and said, look, can't we make this happen? Why, why don't you just let him do it, and then this won't be a lawsuit? You're going to get sued. Mm -hmm. And the chaplain said, well, I know I am, but I can't allow an atheist to come into Congress to, to deliver, deliver a secular invocation. And so we were ready, and so on that actual Thursday, the day of prayer, we filed the lawsuit. And the lawsuit is in, <clears throat> I guess, federal court, right? Yeah, in, in uh, D.C., yeah. Oh, the, the, the D.C., uh, the district court. So where? Yeah. So it'll take a while for the lawsuit to work its way up, obviously. They usually do, right? Well, yeah, you have a, a scheduling, and then you have to file your briefs, and then you have response briefs. and. Uh, the government's going to make all these moves. And, and we also named uh, the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, who, by the way, is also from my state. He's from Janesville, Wisconsin. Um, mm -hmm. We named him because the chaplain works as a government officer under the uh, the head of the House, House of Representatives. So, so and Paul, Ryan's, yeah. Paul Ryan's office told the media that this case has no merit. So no merit? It looks like... So they're going to fight it, yeah. <laughs> Their prayers have no merit, according to the U.S. Constitution. I mean, that's my well, opinion, that's, anyhow, you know. Well, that's what I think, too. I thought, I thought it was all about separation of church and state. Wasn't that an essential part of the revolution and of the Constitution to begin with? You know, yeah. Arg uh, yeah. arguing your case, but... I mean, you're, you're exactly right. In fact, James Madison even was opposed to chaplains, especially paid chaplains. Why are we paying this guy? There's all sorts of clergy in the D.C. area who would jump at the chance. Mm -hmm. to open Congress with prayer. Why are we paying this $800,000 a year? And there's churches all over the place. It's not like these senators and representatives are starving for spiritual counsel or something. But, uh, <laughs> but the, the Supreme Court and the courts have made an allowance for chaplains in the sense of uh, solemnizing the occasion. And this uh, decision that came down two years ago, the Greece decision in Greece, New York, uh, the Supreme Court even said, as long as the governmental prayers are not discriminating, as long as uh, as long as a priest or a minister or a rabbi or a Wiccan or an atheist, they even said atheist, the Supreme Court said, then you can have legislative prayer as part of the process of solemnizing the occasion, as long as it's not preaching and prophetizing, you know. So we, we put that in our lawsuit. The Supreme Court has ruled that an atheist could participate, and in fact... We know of more than 70 cases at local levels, at county board meetings and city councils, where 
atheists have in fact delivered a secular invocation before the government meeting and the sky does not fall it was they they were they were honored and respected and welcomed within the government to be a part of the process well i you know obviously talking to me you're talking to the converted to use a certain word already um you know i mean it seems to me and it always has seemed to me that the most solemn part the most profound and solemn and spiritual part about america uh, from the beginning up until currently, although it seems to have gotten completely lost in our, our current form of government or state of government, is that it's we the people. That is the most important, that is the highest power in democracy, in, in our democracy, anyhow. So I'm interested in some details. Who is it? Who's the man? What is the man's name who gets $176,000 to be the official chaplain of the. Talk about boondoggling and whatever it is and pork barreling. I mean, who is this person? Well, yeah, well, his name is uh, Patrick Conroy. He's a Jesuit priest. And uh, he, I, I forget the process. They're either nominated or appointed. It's an internal. Um, house thing that happens, and so he's he is an officer of the house, just like the uh, parliamentarian is an officer of, mm-hmm. the, of the house. You know, there's these people that uh, work for the house, so he works for the ple- at the pleasure of the members of Congress. So, um, and he has an office right in the Capitol with two full-time staff. In fact, two, our two attorneys, Andrew and Sam, went in there a year and a half ago to talk to to them about the possibility of me being invited mm-hmm. and that's where they gave my our attorneys the uh, these rules that they pulled out of who knows where they pulled them out of but they came up with these rules <clears throat> and uh, on the walls there in our in our capital there's a picture of the pope so it's almost like a little catholic uh enclave <laughs> there within <laughs> our capital where you know technically every single priest swears allegiance to the vatican above and beyond everything else but we're not, we're not suggesting that uh, that our government is being subverted by the, the... This is the kind of accusation that went against Kennedy, and it's just like an old-fashioned accusation. Obviously, the Pope is not insidiously inserting somebody. He probably doesn't even know that this chaplain exists there, right? Yeah, I'm sure the Pope does know it. I'm sure... I mean, because it's not that there's an insidious insertion or invasion. It's not that. No. It's that, uh, it's that, that many religious people want to make their mark or they want to claim their territory on our government in some way or other so uh, I'm sure the chaplain knows that he is a representative he works he's an officer of a secular government Mm -hmm. but in his own mind his allegiance is not to the United States his the the Vatican is a separate state supposedly which which Reagan made happen which we think is kind of silly because it's just a little tiny Disneyland sized Mm-hmm. Religion. It's not really a government or, or a state. But in any event, officially, the Vatican is a state. Right. Uh, and we have diplomatic relations with the Vatican. Suppose theoretically, and this would this is silly and would never happen. But suppose theoretically, we went to war with the Vatican. Mm-hmm. On who on whose side would priests in America have to side be? They have an allegiance to a, what they consider to be a higher power. When in the United States, we don't have a higher power. We got rid of the higher power, and it's, we have just we the people. We're all equal citizens. Well, I mean, <clears throat> we do have a higher power, and it's called money, but that's a separate maybe discussion for another time. Um, yeah. Uh, so what do these two people do? I, 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 you know, I'm sorry to be so petty about this, but I can't get over the fact that there's a budget, and then a man 
like you said, when there when there are priests, rabbis, ministers, whatever, imams, uh, all over the place in, in the Washington area, who would love to be able to to do that for various reasons. Uh, why it is, I mean, obviously this is some sort of, somebody knows somebody and this job exists and somebody gets to uh, use, you know, like, um, you know, the, some patronage here. But what on earth would a person like this, whose only job is to open uh, the sessions with a prayer, need to, what do these two people do there? What do his two assistants do? Yeah, well, um, he only has one codified duty, and that is to open with a prayer. Mm-hmm. And he only he only does about sixty percent of them. But the uh, his staff says, well, he's busy uh, coordinating the guest ministers and and the introductions to them, and it all gets written into the congressional record. And they need to, and then he's also available as a counselor. That's what they say. Although that's not part of his official duties. He's there to be the kind of chaplain, counselor for anybody who needs spiritual help in that. In the Congress? And, uh, I mean, in, in the House of Representatives? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in, yeah, in the Capitol. So, uh, so he, and then he leads these uh, Bible studies and prayer things, and so he's, he's a presence there. Mm-hmm. I don't know the whole backstory. I don't know why he was picked. Um, hmm. That would but, be interesting. Uh, and, and it might be that he's very, very busy. I don't know. He, he probably does a lot of speaking engagements. And I don't know if the laws of the government preclude him from getting honorariums for speaking. It's possible that he collects well, that's speaking interesting. as well. That would be interesting to find out. I mean, um, this whole thing is, uh, I feel like they're like stealing my money to find this out. I mean, it's enough thing that we're, I mean, we're paying taxes for all kinds of things a lot of us don't like, you know, wars and drone strikes and so many other things. I mean, this is yet another thing that just irritates me that... Uh, my tax money is being used for this, and we're not picking at any particular religion, but just the same. Um, let me let me talk about the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Can you talk about the founding? And obviously, I can see the purpose of the organization, but what about the founding of it and the funding of it? It started back in the early to mid 1970s when a woman here in Madison, Wisconsin, Ann Gaylor, and her her daughter Annie Laurie Gaylor, who was in college. Um, and Anne died last year, and Annie Laurie has continued. Um, she's still one of the founders. They were they were lobbying and working for women's rights, and they noticed that it was the church who was opposing women's rights. And so whenever they were testifying in favor of women's rights or birth control or abortion rights or whatever, uh, they, there were these priests up there praying. And so Anne complained once, why are there priests up there in our, in our government? They're the, they're the enemy of women's rights. They're trying to keep us down. And uh, a reporter asked her, so, well, are you a group? And she said, yeah, we're a bunch of people who want to be free from religion. And he put it, put it in the newspaper, and she started getting calls saying, I want to join your group. I want to join your group. So the, so the Freedom from Religion Foundation kind of accidentally started because of the issue of, of equal rights for all, especially for women. <laughs> and, and, of course, we care about uh, LGBT and gay rights and, 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 and civil rights and all of that as well now. So uh, the foundation started in 76 locally. In 1978, became a national nonprofit with two purposes, to keep state and church separate and to educate the public about the views of us non-believers. You know, who are the atheists and agnostics in this country? What do we think? And why do we think the way we think? So we publish a newspaper. We have a national radio show. We publish books. Um, we have a legal staff. 
when, when and where? T tell me more about the radio show. I mean, when, when can people hear it? Where is it? Where do they find it? When can they hear it? It's called Free Thought Radio, and free thought is one word. And look it up in the dictionary. Free thought, free thinker is an old, respectable word. That, that It's like an umbrella for um, mm -hmm. atheism, agnosticism, secular humanism. We broadcast first uh, here in Madison, Wisconsin, on 92.1. It's called Progressive Talk. But there's other stations that pick it up around the country, in Texas, in Missouri, in Grand Rapids, in, uh, in New York State, um, and even in Janesville, where Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, is from. So, uh, and then a few days later, it goes up as a podcast. So and, people uh, can, it's a week. Uh, I'm sorry, so people can find that, this information, by going to the website? Yeah, or just go to Free Thought Radio okay. uh, you know, on our website. Our website is the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Um, All right. And, and uh, you have something else here called uh, you're a co-founder of the Clergy Project. Uh, oh, no, first I wanted to get back to, is it just your, your members that fund any uh, activities there? Or do yeah. You, do you have, yeah, go ahead. It's all private. It's just all membership that does it. And membership is $40 a year. We have 24,000 members now. We just, we just topped 24,000 last week. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then some of them are more generous than the forty dollars a year, and then we do twice a year we do a fundraiser for special projects, and uh, so there's there's no grants there's no government money it's just it's just a you know a private nonprofit organization of people who support those purposes, and uh, we just expanded our national headquarters uh, people all over the country supported, and now we quadruple our space we have right now. Five full-time attorneys plus two full-time attorneys who are on fellowships, and right now there are five legal interns. So we have a huge legal staff. Uh, and I was going <clears throat> to ask you about that. Do you file amicus briefs on a regular basis whenever there's a, a religious issue that comes up before the courts? Well, we do. We file actual lawsuits, like the one you just mentioned. We usually have a, about a dozen in the in the courts at any time. But yeah, we will file um, amicus briefs um, for other groups for the uh, for the um, ACLU, for the Americans United for Separation of Church and State, for CFI for American Atheists, American Humanists. All of the groups kind of work together with amicus briefs. And some of them file briefs for us when we take lawsuits, especially when we get to the appeals or to the Supreme Court level. And uh, but most of the work of our attorneys is um, is not the um, litigation. Uh, they're mainly hired to write letters. We get more than four thousand complaints a year from people all over the country who say they're praying in my fifth graders public school class, right. or there's a ten, right. there's a Ten Commandments monument in front of my high school, or or you know, the military's doing this, or the governor's doing that, uh, or there's a nativity scene here. So there's there's about 50 different kinds of complaints we get. And so our attorneys send letters of complaint to these government officials, and often that corrects the abuse without going to court. Mm -hmm. We just remind them, here's what the law says, especially in your state. There was this, this lawsuit in this case, or there was a federal case here. So roughly 20% of the time, these letters correct a state church violation without going to court, which is really nice, because going to court is expensive. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in, in, you know, those those victories are very, very precious to us. And, the, and, of course, the litigation victories are very hard fought. They're expensive, and they're time-consuming. And 
our attorneys being attorneys, they they want to litigate. You know, they just they just and, and right. we do too. Annie Laurie says, um, she's my wife. She's co-president. She says there's nothing more fun than suing the government, <laughs> and <laughs> and I say, well, and winning. <laughs> right. So, uh, and we lose sometimes. Um, and you know, almost half the time we lose the case, but most of the time when we lose, it's not on the merits; it's on standing. We we have lost oh, cases see. that I see. Yeah. The, the courts the courts even said, you know, on on the merits, you're probably right, but you don't have the legal standing to take this case, and so the courts are finding ways to duck these lawsuits because it's unpopular. Mm-hmm. And you know the government's going to try that with this case about the chaplain. They're going to try to find some way to to knock the case out of court without even getting into court. By, well, I'd, by love to get us. I'd love to hear how they could possibly claim that you, as an American citizen, have no standing. That would be interesting to me. Yeah. Well, it's only, it, it, the only standing I have is because a representative in the House requested me to take a lawsuit. So we're suing under uh, equal process. And equal treatment, because other people who are similarly situated to me have been accepted to do that, right. and I have not. But but the government's going to do that. You can bet the government's going to throw up all sorts of. They're going to try to convince the judge he doesn't have any right to take this suit because no one has, no American has the right to go into Congress and barge up to the front and say, "I'm going to speak this prayer." No one has the right to do no, that. No, God forbid that but, an American citizen should have any influence on Congress. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, well, I mean, God forbid, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry, and, and I, I agree with you 100. percent However, uh, you no, know, I know what procedur- you mean. Procedurally, the the working of the chaplain is an inner working within the Congress. It's not it's not directed to the general public. It's right. like in in if they have want to have their internal rules about what they do. And if if Obama wants to bow his head and lead his staff in prayer in the Oval Office. Well, that's an internal thing. That's their their discretion, and so the so so you and I don't have a right to barge into Congress and say we want to speak. But my representative does have the right to ask, and he did ask for me, and he was turned down. We were both turned down. So in that case, they're going to have to find some other way to try to put up a roadblock, and we'll have to see what they try to do. Well, I, in any event. Oh, on, the, on the merits, it looks very strong. Oh, sure. <clears throat> on the merits, it seems uh, unassailable to me. But, um, so, um, as far as the, the standing goes, well, I guess yeah, we'll find out about that. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, you have uh, some books that you've written here, and I wanted to mention them to people. Godless, How an Evangelical Preacher Became One of America's Leading Atheists. And I presume that's you, right? Or is that yeah, that's and yeah, that's me, and that's my story. And that's a forward, and, and it has a forward by Richard Dawkins, right? And in the forward that Richard Dawkins wrote, he said, Dan Barker wasn't just a preacher. He was the kind of preacher you would not want to sit next to on a bus. Because <laughs> I, I was that guy. And so it tells my whole story after 19 years of preaching, how and why I changed my mind and what happened, and, then my, and the arguments and the reasoning and the reliability of the Bible and what's wrong with the resurrection narratives, for example, and... Uh, the internal contradictions and the scientific inaccuracies and so on. So it's it's kind of that book is making my case for why I left the ministry. Well, it, I mean, to get involved in uh, what uh, 
what internal um, you know uh, problems there are with the Bible or anything that has to do with scientific uh, miscalculations or misstatements in the Bible it's, it almost seems kind of silly to me. Obviously, the whole thing is a, is mythology, and you don't you don't bring science to mythology. But uh, so. After all this time as an evangelical preacher, I mean, how how were you brought up, and wh what kind of way were you brought up uh, as far as religion goes? We were true believers. We were Bible-believing, church-going, conservative, fundamentalist-type preachers. The Bible is absolutely true, and we we did house-to-house -house witnessing. We preached and sang, and we uh, we were just and I loved it. I thought it was wonderful. Where was it? where was and this? I, where was this? This was in Ca Southern California. Okay. And uh, my my dad was a lay preacher, and my mom was a Sunday school teacher, and you know we thought we were. I was so lucky to be born in the right religion, in the right family, in the mm -hmm. right country, in the right time of history, and I was called to be a, a soldier in the front line of the army for Jesus, and the world was going to end any minute, and we needed to get our souls right with God because you might go to hell or you could go to heaven. All of that, you mm -hmm. know. And I truly believed, and I preached for all those years. And it was sincere. I was not a phony. I was very dismissive of these kind of phony con man preachers out there who didn't believe what they were preaching. They were in it for the money. And uh, I thought, you know, Jesus is my Lord, and I'm going to see him someday, and I want to do every moment I can. I was that true believer, and, and it was positive. It was, in my mind, it was just this good, wonderful thing that I was sharing with the world. And so when I changed my mind, it was agonizing. It was painful. It was almost like... But, spitting on grandma, if you but, know what but, I mean. It was like but betraying why? everything. But I, obviously, it was a long process, and many things were involved, but is there any way you could summarize, or would that not do it justice, why you did change your mind? I mean, that's yeah, are, 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 you the kind of, are you the kind of person who goes from one extreme to another? Is that your personality? Well, actually, I don't think I changed at all. I'm still the same person. Mm -hmm. I still have the same desire to, to know the truth and get up and speak the truth, and uh, the same love for knowledge and the same, you know, value of human life and beauty and all that. I don't think I changed at all. It was the conclusions that changed, and that's what was hard because if you if your religious identity or your your ideological views are tied to who you are as a person, mm -hmm. then when you change that. It's like, oh, no, I'm changing myself. I'm in, in, and it's almost a betrayal of your family and yourself. But it was a four- or five-year process, as I discuss in that book, uh, Godless, uh, that started with just some simple, not doubts, because I wasn't, you know, you don't just wake up one day and become an atheist. It was, it was just, it, it was a transition within the Christian community. And I think most of the work that discredits Christianity has been done by Christians themselves. So I started reading Christian scholars, and and basically it was it was the whole idea of, of the Bible for me at least. I know you're right; it is seems silly because it's myth and it's not true; it's fiction. And the title of my next book is God, the most unpleasant character in all fiction. But um, but when you're raised as a fundamentalist and it is quote unquote absolutely true in your brain, it's hard to to release that. It was just a horrible, almost five year process, starting with things like well, okay. The prodigal son wasn't a historical person. It was a story that Jesus made up to teach an important moral truth. Ancient Israelites thought Adam and Eve were just also metaphorical. They weren't really real people. There, were, there couldn't have been a real Adam and Eve. That was, a, that was metaphorical. That was a, a story they made up, like the parables that Jesus made up. So therefore, what other character in the Bible is just a big figure of speech? 
maybe Yahweh, maybe God himself. It's just this character parable metaphor that the human race has made up to try to give some kind of moral meaning. And, and it was that kind of a process. It was horrible, but then I came out the other side and I dumped out all the bathwater and I said, hey, there's no baby there. Uh, you don't need this. There's no evidence for a God. There's no good argument for a God. Earphones must be oh here there. Uh, so in other words, you had to convince yourself since you believed that the word of the uh, word of God and the words in the Bible were true. You had to convince yourself. That's where it comes. That's where the details and, and the facts come in. You had to convince yourself that they were not true, and that was a major revolution, right? For you. Yeah, yeah. And 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 to be fair, not all Christians are fundamentalists. So we can't paint them all with the same brush. There's a whole bunch of really good Christians who accepts the fact that the Bible has mostly metaphor and that Adam and Eve were not really real people and so on, that even God himself might be just more of a kind of, you know, like Paul Tillich said, God is the ground of all being. Or others say, well, God is the bond of love that unites human beings in a common purpose. And, and I'm wondering, well, why call that God? Why not just call that the ground of all being and the bond of human love that unites us? Why, why pretend like it's a person or a thing out there? Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, you're right. I I had to convince myself before I could actually jump out of that. What what happened with uh, with your family? Well, that's interesting. Um, family and friends and co-ministers and and Christian publishers because I had music published. Um, if you can imagine the reaction after I sent out my letter uh, explaining that I was not a believer anymore, uh, that's the reaction I got. I got everything from wonderful friendly, warm, loving reactions from Christian people who we're still friends today. You know what I mean? We, we just really like each other's people. But And I got on the other extreme some surprisingly disappointing, ugly, hateful responses from Christians that I thought were my friends. Mm -hmm. But they could not stand... The, the friendship was contingent, in other words, of belonging to the same group and if you didn't belong to the same group if you were an outsider you were no longer my friend which which is part of human nature i think we're all we all yeah, have this kind of tribal happens. thing but what that, what happened was specifically was did you have trouble within your family or did you did you expect it did you get it or were you spared it yeah well both both some wonderful and some horrible things happened my mm -hmm. mom and dad were very shocked but after about a year my mom stopped teaching sunday school and became an atheist she said you know what <laughs> danny's right and then about a year later, after Dad and I had some friendly uh, theological letters back, he, he said the same thing. And mom, both my mom and Dad became atheists after that, which is really weird, because I wasn't, like, preaching at them. Like, right. that, the last thing I wanted to be was an atheist, you know, proselytizer to my family. Fam there's more important things to talk about in your family than what divides so, you. So, in other words, the, the Freedom From Religion Foundation is not... Um, militant atheist organization that wants to remove God from uh, American culture and politics uh, completely. It's just sort of focusing in on the way it's abused by government agencies and uh, government bodies, right? Well, yes and no. Um, okay. Yes, uh -huh. we focus on state-church separation, which is important. And in fact, on the issue of state-church separation, most believers agree with us. We take lawsuits and we're joined by Christians and Jews and Unitarians and Wiccans, Catholics and Protestants, who agree with us that it's good for religion and government to be kept separate. Because if you mix the two, they both get dirty. But our second purpose is to educate the public about the views of non-believers. And of course, most of us atheists do think that the world would be a better place if religion were removed. 
However, we respect human freedom, especially the freedoms in the First Amendment. We're not barging into churches. We're not dragging people out of pews. We're not being rude or insensitive. or We're not denying anyone the freedom to believe whatever they want. If they want to stand on their heads and pray to Mother Goose and speak in tongues, this is America, right? We, we have the freedom to say that's silly, that's nonsense, but we respect the believer's choice and freedom to assemble together and worship however they feel like they want to, mm-hmm. whatever whatever stripe or flavor of their religion they, they choose to adopt. So we're respectful when it comes to human freedoms, but we are not respectful when it comes to the government speaking up and promoting religion or hindering right. religion for that like, matter. Like, so, like teaching creationism in schools and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, when the government itself crosses the line. Because in America, we have free speech, but the government doesn't have free speech. The government speech is curtailed. The very First Amendment says that. Hmm. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise. So when when individuals speak, that's great. That's America. I walk past the nativity scene in our neighbor's front yard every every December, and it's tacky, it's ugly, it's offensive, but I applaud their freedom. I celebrate the freedom of my neighbors to use their property to advertise their religious views as they see fit. That's America. Mm-hmm. But if the nativity scene is on the steps of City Hall right. or at the state capitol, owned by the government and promoted by the government, well, that crosses the line. That becomes government speech, and in that case, we do complain about that, although a lot of believers don't see the distinction. They think we are limiting their freedom to worship, but all we're saying is that the government has to be neutral. Well, let me ask you, and we're coming to the end of our, uh, our section here, but we're going to talk about this. Um, and by the way, you're listening to Dan Barker, who is a former Christian minister and is now and has been for a while co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation and co-host of Free Thought Radio. And you can find out more about Free Thought Radio by going to the um, website, which is, what is the website? FFRF.org. Those okay. are the letters for Freedom Freedom From Religion Foundation. <clears throat> and most people are aware of the fact from all the polls that have been taken, this I suppose is my last question here, that uh, the number of people who don't identify with any religious uh, affiliation or don't identify as religious at all uh, is increasing all the time. And, of course, naturally, it's mostly younger people. Um, and that's in the United States. But it seems sometimes when you pick up a newspaper um, or when you listen to the news or you watch what's going on on TV or whatever, that almost the opposite is happening in the rest of the world. Or is that, is that, What do you think about that? Yeah, in the Western world or the developed world, religion has really gone down. Look at look at especially Western Europe, and look at the Nordic countries, where in Denmark only about four percent of the Danes say they believe in God, although about half the Danes are cultural Christians. They'll get married in the church, although they're atheists. But uh, in the south of the equator, especially where the standard of living is not so well, where there's dysfunctional governments. There's this tendency for countries that are not so well off to be more religious, and a lot of sociologists like Phil Zuckerman think it's because you 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 want to escape the misery. You want to buy that cosmic lottery ticket to get out of it. You need help, and you pray, and so you so religion becomes a very big deal. And and there's this correlation. It's not perfect, but there's this correlation between uh, how well off a country is and how little religion they have. Hmm. And we're seeing it happening in the United States, especially in the last two decades, where 
non-religion has become the fastest growing religion on this continent and we might be catching up with Europe pretty soon mm -hmm. um, well um, all I can say is keep up the good work I mean I'm completely in agreement with what you're doing um, it offends me every time I see these things encroaching on public property and um, uh, although, you know, when it comes to personal things, I have my own idea of what may be out there or up there or around here or anything like that. And I suppose the word for it is spiritual, although that's a much abused or condemned word these days. I think it's a perfectly valid word. I have a spiritual feeling about things I can't see or hear or what I might also call fate. And maybe you do, too. But... Um, uh, but it's good that there's an organization like yours, especially when there's such constant abuse. And in the last 20, 30 years, we've got so much of this evangelical vote uh, intruding on American democracy and warping and uh, our uh, school system, education, and intruding on the military, all those kinds of things. So I'm really glad that you're there. This is Dan Barker you've been listening to. Uh, B-A-R-K-E-R and freedomfromreligionfoundation.org F-F-R-F.org Thanks for uh, for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Mike. Okay, Dan. All right. Uh, we're going to take a little break and uh, we'll be back for a few minutes to talk about some of the things we were talking about last week, uh, especially me thinking out loud about my radio career here. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Lord, it's good enough for me. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And welcome to what I think will be a happy experience for all. Because tonight the Johnny Cash Show makes a joyful noise. It's good enough for me. The nice guest in the Hadia Jackson. It was good for Paul and Silas. It was good for Paul and Silas. It's good enough for me. Stuart Hamlin. That's, I wanted to get a, like a, just a straight ahead version of that, but uh, maybe I'll set it up for next time. Uh, I think I had one. I don't know what I did with it. All right, so last week I was mentioning, when we tuned in last week, Mike, <laughs> the endless serial of my, my serial uh, of my life here for 35 years on the radio, uh, was Mike was thinking out loud, I was thinking out loud, about um, not continuing doing my radio show. And I asked anybody who was listening, not, not if you felt like it, but, you know, if really I appeal to everybody who was listening, anyone and everyone who was listening, to just say that you were. You didn't, wasn't necessary to uh, make a statement or a response if you didn't want to, but just to sort of raise your hand, uh, you know, email-wise, so let me know if you were listening and the way to do that and the way you could still do that if you still want to make a response and you haven't yet uh, about my um, about the show what it's meant to you or what I've said and anything that's it's meant to you on the radio how it's maybe amused you or helped you pass the time or inspired you or whatever uh, the best way to do that is go to fader files f-e-d-e-r-f-i-l-e-s dot com fader files dot com and you can join my mailing list there, and I can keep you up to date on everything that's going on about what 
I'm thinking about uh, when I'm not once a week doing the podcast. I can tell you in more detail what I'm thinking about in terms of radio and my, my feelings about modern radio and about my place on it and everything else. So go to faderfiles.com, and when you're there, you can see some other stuff I did. I've wrote some, written some articles, and you can join my mailing list, and you can get in touch with me. That's the way to get in touch with me. Um, I, um, I received some, and I'm very grateful for this. It, very, it was very touching, very moving. I received some very profoundly uh, personal uh, reactions from people to my comment that I might just stop doing this. And this is not something whimsical. I mean, the radio for the last 35 years, and before that, when I was listening to BAI originally, to, uh, to non-profit freeform radio, and to various other radio stations. I was, I've been listening to radio for 65 years now. When my uh, father left, when I was about four years old, one, he left very little behind him. And one thing he left was um, a small little radio which I kept at my uh, bedside, and um, it was, this is so long ago, this is antediluvian times, boys and girls, that this radio used to heat up. It had tubes in it. <laughs> it's, I can't, scientifically, I don't have the metaphorical ability to describe what is more opposite than current streaming and other kinds of radio, but it might be this. This is a radio made out of the first piece of plastic called Bakelite originally plastic, a hard plastic that was tough, that was used for, um, for, uh, for military purposes. It was used for flashlights that need to be uh, durable. And for the, some of the original radios, they were made out of something called Bakelite, B-A-K-E-L-I-T-E, and it was a, a form of plastic. This had tubes. You had to wait for it to warm up, and it had tubes. That's how, that's how long ago this was. And this radio for me was what uh, psychologists call a transitional object. Do you know from this, a transitional object? When you see kids with little dollies that they carry around everywhere or a blankie, you know, a blanket, um, uh, when kids grow up, when they, when they start to get older and they go through developmental periods, when they're two, three, four, five years old, they're starting to experience a sense of themselves in the world. And... and and their own identity starts to form in them. And it causes um, uh, excitement, pride, and fear. Fear. Because when you're, and maybe you've, you, can, you, can, <laughs> you can identify with this yourself, you can remember this or you can, you can relate to this, that when you start, and this can happen in different ways no matter how old you are in any kind of relationship, if and when you start to assert yourself or a new realization comes upon you or you come across something that's forming a real sense of self or identity, it doesn't matter what age you are, but this happens to all kids, you feel scared that you're separating from what you used to know. And in the case of little kids, toddlers and little kids, it's always mommy and daddy, particularly mommy. And you uh, usually wind up uh, getting a blanket or a doll that mom or dad gave you, mommy or daddy gave you, and you just never let go of it. You hold on to it till it's shredded, till it's in pieces, till the stuffing's coming out of it. I never had anything like that because my parents weren't in any way on the normal continuum of mothers and fathers. However, the closest thing I had to it, I couldn't carry this around because, you know, after all, this is the days where there were not even uh, portable radios when I was first growing up. Portable radios came in like the 50s or 60s. 
But when I was really little, they just had these old, uh, you know, living room or bedside radios. And it was plugged into the wall, so I wasn't taking it anywhere, right? Meanwhile, um, this was as close as it gets. So my father gave me this radio and took off for parts unknown and almost really completely unknown, a real world wanderer. And I had this radio. So I've been listening, bottom line, I've listened to the radio for like, you know, almost my entire life. So radio is a part of my identity, which is, is so deep and profound, I couldn't even plumb the depths of it. It's in my bones, it's in my blood. Later on, listening to other radio stations that had to do with um, cultural revolutions and political revolutions, uh, you know, free-form, non-profit radio, not regular, just... And then even listening when I was driving my car around like a teenager and later on uh, in college and I had dates with girls and... You know, I had my, uh, I actually had once in an old uh, convertible. I actually had a convertible. It was the coolest thing in the world, although it was broken half the time because it was an old used car. But uh, it was a Studebaker Lark. You never heard of it. Look it up on the internet. Studebaker Lark. <laughs> One of the silliest cars ever made. And can you imagine anybody calling a car like that now? The cars are all called, you know, you know Jaguar Crunch Master 2 or Ramjet 6. This was a lark. I liked my little lark. Anyhow, um, yeah, you know, I put the music on like any other teenager, you know, uh, blasting this loud rock and roll music from the uh, from the fifties and the um, and the uh, early sixties, the Beach Boys, whatever, you know, uh, get around, I get around, whatever it was. But the radio has always been in every stage of my life an, an extremely important thing, and it's important to me later on that I was working on the radio, that I was telling people my feelings and thoughts on the radio, and it still is. Only so many other things are happening now which are pulling me in other directions, and uh, a certain, I don't know, sense of completion is coming. So uh, I only have a couple of minutes left here, and this is an ongoing process. I want to let you know that, um, not necessarily as part of this process, but because of circumstances, next week is, uh, next uh, Monday is July 4th, and we won't be broadcasting a new show on July 4th. The station is closed. And two, for the two Mondays after that, I'll be on vacation. Um, uh, if I uh, manage to get my head together and my body works right, I'll be going up to Maine, um, where I've gone many times before for a vacation. For two, uh, so there'll be three Mondays in a row where I won't be doing new shows. However, I've gone through a lot of trouble to go through all my old broadcasts and picked out three what I consider to be extremely good ones. I think they're good ones. And um, from at least several months ago, some from last year. So tune in. Also, to the people who um, PRN doesn't have uh, a designated budget because uh, this this station runs at a loss. We don't do endless fundraising here, and we don't have corporate sponsors or any kind of sponsors. But we don't have a public relations or a press budget and uh, a PR budget here for our shows uh, on PRN. So we rely on you. If you like this show, if you get something from this show, please, and or from any other show on PRN, uh, the way that we spread it is, uh, is to tell everybody you know. Put it on some other list. Refer my show or some other PRN show to some other list you're on or to every list you're on or tell every one of your friends, check this guy out, check this woman out. They're really good. So uh, I would appreciate it if you did that. And once again, thanks to everybody who wrote in. 
I really, really appreciate it. It means a lot to me for various reasons. And I'll, I'll be responding to some people, to others who just said, hi, I'm listening, maybe not, but to some people who gave me reasons, yes. And I'll see you in, uh, in um, uh, well, there'll be rebroadcast, but I'll see you live again uh, in a couple of weeks. Religion. Give me that old time religion. Give me that old time religion. 